Welcome to the Ocrest Podcast Channel. Ocrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. In this podcast, Dr. Taryn Okuma, an associate English professor at the Catholic University of America, shares her reflections on the popularity of memoir writing and what it is about memoir as a genre that makes it appealing to readers. She discusses how memoirs allow readers to consider how they read literature and how it influences their view of the world. This lecture was held as the 8th Annual O'Donovan Humanities Lecture, which aims to instill a deeper appreciation of the importance of the humanities in everyday life. So I'm here as a literature professor who works on fiction to talk to you about memoirs. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to start with a question for all of you, um, which is, How many of you have read a memoir sometime in the last year? Okay, that's a fair number. How many of you have read maybe even a short piece of writing that you might describe as personal writing? Okay, so like a lot. Um, Why do you read memoirs? If you read a memoir, why did you read it? Seeing other people's lives, learning from their experiences, seeing how that can change the way that you think about your own experience. And it's not that we can't get this from reading novels. You know, we, all, we know that. Like, we can, we can read plenty of good novels that will teach us things about how to be in the world, um, to learn lessons about our families, about ourselves. But there's just something particularly compelling about a personal story, about a true story. And novels are amazing. Like, I love novels. That's, that's my bread and butter is novels. Um, but there's a difference between reading a story with a fictional character who's been invented by the author and exists only within the pages of a book, and reading a story that's told by the person who lived it. And whenever I've taught memoirs in literature classes or chosen them for our campus book club, students always arrive at a kind of a key moment in the discussion. And it's when they ask a question that motivates the line of thinking that I'm kind of tracing tonight. And and that question is, Is it true? And sometimes the student's kind of embarrassed uh, that they're even thinking this question because they feel like it's a question they're not really supposed to ask. It's a memoir. Of course it's true. Um, And generally, because they're, if I'm I'm working with them, a college student studying English, um, they're more accustomed to discussing works of fiction. And so they can't help but feel a little sheepish sheepish raising this question because they might seem like an amateur reader. Shouldn't they be focusing on symbolism or, you know, themes or questions of style? And other times students raise the question because they have been feeling a kind of doubt creeping in more and more as they've been reading. And if these things didn't really happen, they don't know how to keep going, right? How do you read a memoir that you think is lying to you? So there's a degree of textual ambiguity that many readers will tolerate, but it seems like blurring the line between what is fiction and what is nonfiction risks leaving readers, like my students, like me, to throw up their hands and ask, but if it's not true, then what is the point? Now, most of the time in a literature class, it's more productive for me to try to move students away from debating over and over again whether or not everything in the memoir is going to be true. Um, they want to you know, talk about whether or not details are accurate or verifiable. Um, 
But there's something important about this question and about their need to ask this question. My students are both very suspicious of narratives that claim to be true, and they also deeply desire them. So there's much in our current culture, and certainly in dom dominant academic culture, that would try to tell us that these questions are not important, that a story is true if the author believes it to be so, that personal truth is the only truth that we have, and so asking whether a memoir is true or not is maybe the wrong question to ask. Yet, what we might realize is that when we read memoirs, we read with the assumption that what we are reading is true, even though we read with other assumptions that might seem to contradict that belief, such as acknowledging that memory is faulty, that a memoir is not a complete or absolute account, it's not a transcript of someone's life, it's a narrative of personal experience that's on some level inevitably subjective. But while we accept that memoirs are not accurate per se, we still expect them to be true in some sense in order to justify their difference from fiction. And because we perceive there to be problems, if not real dangers, in alighting fiction and nonfiction. So one of the examples that I use in my memoir class to illustrate this point is a book that was published in 1995 by a man claiming the name Benjamin Wilkomirski. Fragments, Memories of a Wartime Childhood, is an account of how he survived two Nazi concentration camps before eventually escaping to Switzerland as a young boy in World War II. The book and author were initially very well received. They were covered extensively in the press. But by 1998, questions about the authenticity of the story had started to arise. And by 1999, the literary agency that contracted the author hired a Swiss historian to investigate the case. And there's an excellent book about how this research was undertaken because it was an extremely delicate thing to undertake. You're essentially accusing someone who self-identifies as a Holocaust survivor of being a liar. There are all kinds of problems that you're wading into just raising the question about that. So the book, the book about the investigation is called The Wilkomirsky Affair by Stefan Machler. But to summarize the findings, the memoir was totally fabricated. He uh, had been only an adult tourist in the camps. He was not Jewish. He had spent his entire childhood in Switzerland. So generous readings of the situation ascribe the hoax to Wilkomirsky's different but very real childhood trauma as a Swiss orphan, and that he essentially used the Holocaust as a metaphor for his own personal suffering. He used it to convey his own traumatic experience in a way that he felt readers could readily recognize and came to believe, or at least publicly believe, that this had actually been his experience. Now, we could make a literary comparison here. Um, this way of describing the book might remind you of Sylvia Plath's deployment of this metaphor in her poem, Daddy. And leaving aside the question of how we might judge Plath's poetic choice there, there's still a difference uh, between adopting the experience of a Holocaust survivor as a memoirist and adopting it for a poetic voice. And this is because we expect memoirs to be true, and the kind of truth we expect memoirs to convey is a truth that is verifiable. 
It's not simply metaphorical or figurative. So when a poet uses the Holocaust as a metaphor for suffering, we might question that aesthetic choice in literary terms, but we can't conflate the poet and the poetic voice. But when a memoirist claims to be a Holocaust survivor, but in fact is not, they're not only co-opting the stories of those who did indeed survive the Holocaust, they're also breaking that literary compact that's implied when a reader picks up a memoir, that what the author is telling really happened, uh, that it's real, that it's true. So what's interesting to me about discussing false memoirs with students is that while they don't believe that memory is accurate or entirely reliable, and they tend to give traumatic narratives a special kind of status, they are still seeking narrative truth. And students are highly critical of Wilkomirski's actions. They're angry about it. They're disgusted by his choice. Um, and on your handout, I've included, I'm not, we're not gonna read it out um, to spare all of you one of many block quotes to come, um, but what I've given you to read later, and I will actually come back to it briefly later, is a quote from one of my students reflecting on the experience of learning about this and thinking about it in the context of how she understands memoirs. Now, whether the reader perceives the author to be truthful or not is connected to the reader's own experience of narratives in the world. What I'm interested in is why this is the case. When I ask why read memoir, I'm asking, what is it that we are seeking and expecting when we read memoirs, and how that's shaped by the ways in which memoirists engage us through their narratives? What if we take seriously and don't take for granted our expectation of truth as readers of memoir? So in that case, I think memoirs invite us to consider a number of important questions that get at the intersections between our ideas of how we conceive of the relationship between ourselves and others, literature, and truth. How do we render experience in ways that are legible to others in narrative? And what's lost in our attempt to do that? What's the relationship between the self who experiences and the narrator who describes those experiences in writing. Whose stories do we tell when we seek to tell our own stories? These are big questions, and I think get at sort of some of what we're drawn to when we read memoirs. They engage our ethical impulses, our desire to seek truth in a way that differs from other forms of literature. So given this claim that I've now made, um, here's a question we might ask. What is a memoir? Uh, it's an odd genre. I probably could have spent like this entire time just kind of trying to distinguish between memoir and autobiography, et cetera. Um, but it's somewhere in between an autobiography, which is nonfiction, and a sort of more, more comprehensive view of someone's life, and a novel, which is fiction. So it seems to me that one of the defining characteristics of memoir has to be its literary qualities, its attention to and engagement with narrative form. It's not a historical record or an encyclopedia entry that gives a detailed account of someone's entire life. It's a curated and composed account of some aspect of a person's experience. And I'd argue that if a memoir seeks to be thorough and exhaustive, it's in that attempt to forge a meaningful and deep connection with the reader, not in its inclusion of all facets of the author's life. And so what do I mean by this? Well, 
Most memoirs want to convey to the reader an intensely personal experience of what it's like to grow up in a particular place with particular people, what it's like to be a part of or to be held separate from a community, to work in a profession, to undergo radical change of one kind or another. And ultimately, the writer is sharing this in an attempt to either help readers to understand and acknowledge this personal experience or to connect with others who have a shared understanding of it. Memoir writers make private and personal experience public. And they do this because they're seeking a relationship with readers, even if at times and in some cases that relationship might be more antagonistic. And again, maybe all of this seems totally obvious to all of you. Um, you know, you're familiar with memoirs. Some of you read memoirs regularly. But again, to not take things for granted. A critique of memoir that I encounter regularly is that it is too self-indulgent, right? That the popularity of memoir is a result of our culture's excessive focus on self-promotion. That memoirs are essentially social media accounts in narrative form, right? <laughs> now, consider some of the ways that Prince Harry's best-selling <laughs> memoir, Spare, and so I've, you know, at least there's not a giant block quote from that, um, <laughs> has been described by reviewers. So here, here are some excerpts from reviews from Spare, of Spare. Quote, repeat oversharing is just one of its problems. Solipsistic, anguished soul-bearing, written explicitly in the cause of securing sympathy for its so-called author, and a long entitled whinge fest. Okay. Now, I mention these reviews not because I want to be dismissive of Prince Harry's book, uh, but because they might help us to think about the genre more generally. If a negative review of a memoir accuses it of oversharing or being solipsistic, it leads me to believe that the reviewer has either failed to grasp the purpose of a memoir, uh, which is by nature focused on the self and sharing otherwise private information about the self, or the author has simply failed to win the reader over to their story. Missing the mark on your rhetorical approach might make your reader think that you are entitled or a so-called author, <laughs> rather than allowing them to imagine what it is like to be you. The same is true for a story that is, objectively speaking, horrifying or shocking or amazing, but is written in a very boring way. So if one seeks to engage readers, it's not enough to live a life to write a memoir. One has to know how to give it narrative shape and definition. And along with that, it's not enough to have a story to tell. One has to tell it well. One has to tell it in a way that's going to connect to one's audience. So it's true. A memoir is driven by a necessary focus by the author on his or herself. But in its very nature, the fact that a memoir is a published and public form of writing means that memoir is always in relationship to others, to the imagined readers present as the author wrote and the public who receives and responds to the work. Now, this might not seem like an obvious way to explore how this works in a memoir, but again, I'm a literature professor, so I thought, let's read Jane Eyre. <laughs> So I, I have a few passages uh, from Charlotte Bronte's 1847 novel. Um, how many of you have read Jane Eyre? Yes, 
Yay. I love the two hands. That's what I... <laughs> okay, so for those of you who have not read Jane Eyre, I will not spoil the novel for you. One should not spoil Jane Eyre. Um, what I'm interested in comes very early on in the novel, um, and it concerns one of the main themes of the book, the development of Jane's authority. The issue of authority is central to issues of identity and culture in the novel. Who is Jane? And to what degree does she have the ability to determine who she is and what she does in the world? And crucially, we should also understand authority in the novel as related to the idea of authorship. What does it mean for Jane to tell her own story, and how will she tell it? So Jane Eyre is the no the, a novel about the life of a young woman, but it's also a novel that reflects constantly and explicitly on the very act of storytelling, of how it is that we tell stories about ourselves. So the narrator of the novel is, a, is an adult Jane, who begins with an account of her years as a young child fostered by her aunt and cousins. They treat her cruelly before sending her off to an orphanage. And at the orphanage, Jane meets another girl, Helen, whom she quickly befriends and with whom she wants to share her experiences. But when Jane attempts to tell her friend how badly she was treated by her family, it does not have the desired effect. So I'm, I'm going to have others come up and read the quotes so that it's not just me talking the entire time. So this is quote number two on your sheet. Helen Burns asked me to explain, and I proceeded forthwith to pour out, in my own way, the tale of my sufferings and resentments. Bitter, truculent when excited, I spoke as I felt, without reserve or softening. Helen heard me patiently to the end. I expected she would then make a remark, but she said nothing. Thank you. What Jane desires is to make Helen understand, to feel the injustice that she, Jane, has experienced. And so what we might notice about Jane's account is that she is overtaken by her own feelings. So much so that she is not at all concerned with her audience. Jane pours out her tale. She speaks as she feels. It's all suffering, resentment, bitterness, truculence. She speaks without reserve, and she's excited. She, as the storyteller, is experiencing her own story more than she is conveying it. Now, in the face of an overwhelming and emotional outpouring, it's perhaps not surprising that Helen literally has no response. How should you respond to something that in many ways does not concern you? Jane's explanation is a response to Helen's request for her story, but it's not truly oriented towards her and is instead more of a release for Jane. Jane can relive these injustices and how they made her feel, but her account does not allow Helen to understand or feel what Jane felt. Helen, after all, has not lived Jane's life. She is not Jane. And Jane's story does not allow her to make the imaginative crossing that would allow her to be in her shoes. This is a very important early lesson for our narrator and, and heroine Jane. And indeed, she learns from it as we see her attempt to tell her story a second time to her favorite teacher, Miss Temple, not long after this episode with Helen. This time, Jane tries a different approach. This is quote number three. 
I resolved in the depth of my heart that I would be most moderate, most correct. And having reflected a few minutes in order to arrange coherently what I had to say, I told her all the story of my sad childhood. Exhausted by emotion, my language was more subdued than it generally was when it developed that sad theme. And mindful of Helen's warnings against the indulgence of resentment, I infused into the narrative far less of the gall and wormwood than ordinary. Thus restrained and simplified, it sounded more credible. I felt as I went on that Miss Temple fully believed me. Gone is the excitement, the outpouring of emotion. This time, Jane attempts an approach of moderation, even pausing to collect her thoughts and plan her words. What we see here is Jane's recognition that if she wishes to persuade and move her audience, her goal should be to give them some understanding of what she's experienced and felt. Simply immersing her audience in how she feels is ineffective, even alienating. Because if others are to understand her interior life, she needs to translate that interior personal experience for others who are outside of it. This is a curious lesson to emphasize in a story of poverty and loss, since storytelling might not seem as important as where one will find shelter or the next meal. Yet it also makes sense that for a young girl with no family to protect her, nor any social prospects or financial security, Learning to advocate for herself is of the utmost importance. To survive, Jane must, in a broad sense, learn how to make herself and her story heard and compel others to respond to her. And the lesson here is that the well-told, credible story, the story that allows others to understand the experience of the self, is told selectively and with equal attention to the audience. In other words, a narrative that conveys true, authentic experience to the reader must be crafted. It must be calibrated in order to invite the reader into another person's life and help them to understand feelings, situations, and thoughts that are not their own. This is the lesson that Jane learns at the beginning of the novel Jane Eyre. And the proof that she's truly internalized it is not just the fact that she convinces Miss Temple, but in the way that the novel as a whole narrated by the adult Jane, moves us as readers and causes us to return to it again and again. What Charlotte Bronte was interested in exploring about the nature of storytelling in the mid-1800s can, in fact, inform our understanding of memoir. I suppose one thing that I'm arguing about memoir as a literary genre is that ultimately there are no stylistic or formal differences between a novel like Jane Eyre and a memoir. The crucial difference is the fact that one is labeled fiction while the other is nonfiction. So the difference ultimately exists outside of the text in a way, in the way that the author has chosen to present his or her book to us. And as a result, we bring particular expectations to the book based on its label. And this raises important questions for the genre of memoir. What does memoir tell us about authority, about authorship, and to what and to whom we are responsible uh, when we tell stories? Let's consider an example. In 2007, 
celebrated writer Joan Didion published The Year of Magical Thinking, which very quickly became a bestseller. It's about the sudden death of her husband, John Gregory Dunn, of a heart attack, which he suffered at their home in New York on the evening of December 30th, 2004. The opening pages of her memoir begin as follows, and I've, I've given you kind of a long quote because I wanted, since it's the only memoir I'm quoting tonight, I wanted to give you a full sense of kind of how the memoir opens. So this is quote four. Life changes fast. Life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. Those were the first words I wrote after it happened. The computer dating on the Microsoft Word file, notes on change, doc, reads May 20th, 2004, 11, 11 p.m. But that would have been a case of my, opening of my opening the file and reflexively pressing save when I closed it. I had made no changes to that file in May. I had made no changes to that file since I wrote the words in January 2004, a day or two or three after the fact. For a long time, I wrote nothing else. Life changes in the instant, the ordinary instant. At some point, in the interest of remembering what seemed most striking about what had happened, I considered adding those words, the ordinary instant. I saw immediately that there would be no need to add the word ordinary because there would be no forgetting it. The word never left my mind. It was, in fact, the ordinary nature of everything preceding the event that prevented me from truly believing it had happened, absorbing it, incorporating it, getting past it. I recognize now that there was nothing unusual in this. Confronted with sudden disaster, we all focus on how unremarkable the circumstances were in which the unthinkable occurred. The clear blue sky from which the plane fell, the routine errand that ended on the shoulder with the car in flames, the swings where the children were playing as usual when the rattlesnake struck from the ivy. He was on his way home from work, happy, success successful, happy, and then gone. I read in the account of a psychiatric nurse whose husband was killed in a highway accident. In 1996, I happened to interview many people who had been living in Honolulu on the morning of December 7, 1941. Without exception, these people began their accounts of Pearl Harbor by telling me what an ordinary Sunday morning it had been. It was just an ordinary, beautiful September day, people still say when asked to describe the morning in New York when American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175 got flown into the World Trade Towers. Even the report of the 9-11 Commission opened on this insistently premonitory and yet still dumbstruck narrative note. Tuesday, September 11, 2001, dawn temperate and nearly cloudless in the eastern United States. So what we might notice is that Didion does not open her memoir about the loss of her husband with an account of his death. Though she does go on to describe how the events unfolded in the second chapter, instead, she begins the memoir with her first attempt to tell the story. And this, in my reading, does two things simultaneously. First, the delay narratively dramatizes her shock while also avoiding treating the tragedy of her husband's sudden death as an opportunity for readerly voyeurism. She conveys a sense of narrative responsibility for her husband. Telling her story necessarily requires telling part of his story. 
And we cannot help but have a natural curiosity about what happened. The fact of his death is part of the marketing and packaging of the book. And so the reader cannot help but wonder when she is going to describe his death and how she will handle it in the narrative. But by delaying that account, she redirects our attention to her experience of grief. And she presents the events within that framework rather than shocking us immediately with his death as a spectacle. In this way, she preserves his dignity and invites us to experience his death in a more complex, more human way. And this is connected to my second point, which is that Didion positions us alongside her rather than at a distance. She seeks to give us access to her experience rather than simply inform us of what she thinks and feels. In these opening pages, she shares with us both her first attempt to narratively process her loss and her inability to properly convey the experience in writing. She shows us what she wrote and rejected because the process, halting, mistakes and all, are what she wishes to emphasize, not the final draft. Didion, a master storyteller, is initially rendered unable to write, and her journey through grief unfolds along with her return to the written page. Didion's loss is deeply personal. How are we to imagine the loss of a husband of nearly 40 years? And not only that, but a particular man who lived a particular life. Nor are we all professional writers like Didion. How are we to imagine her experience? Didion gives us access to her experience by trying to measure the degree of the shock rather than thrusting us into it. She draws out more universal connections and helps us to understand that which is unique through her use of analogy. By invoking both small and large-scale tragedies, a child struck by a rattlesnake, a car accident, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, she seeks not to compare her loss to these examples, the loss of my husband is like X tragedy, but to provide other examples that might help us to imagine the way in which some things are unimaginable. Like Jane Eyre, Joan Didion is exhausted by emotion but she presents a credible narrative because she writes not merely for herself, but with recognition of her audience. Although she wants to make her grief visible, she writes with an understanding that it is not initially visible or even knowable, knowable to us as readers because we are other. We are not her, this was not our loss. Yet in the act of telling her story, she is not only recording that which was unique, her husband, her life with him, her loss of him, but what others might share, the nature of grief, of love, of enduring. And so for me, a good memoir is one which recognizes in the way its writing is oriented towards the reader that the self does not exist in a vacuum, that we are not alone. This may manifest explicitly in a memoir. Uh, many books are about family, community, any number of types of relationships. And this, to me, is one, of, one reason why we as readers hold memoirs accountable in ways that we don't apply to novels. When we read memoirs, we assume that the author is seeking an understanding of the truth that we also share in some fashion. Now, I'm going to turn to a final novel uh, to reflect on what this last point might mean to us as readers. So I end my memoir course, uh, which, which I promise that actually is all memoirs, um, but I end with fiction. I end with How to Tell a True War Story by Tim O'Brien um, from The Things They Carried. And this is the final quote on the handout. You can tell a true war story by the questions you ask. 
Somebody tells a story, let's say, and afterwards you ask, is it true? And if the answer matters, you've got your answer. For example, we've all heard this one. Four guys go down a trail. A grenade sails out. One guy jumps on it and takes the blast and saves his three buddies. Is it true? The answer matters. You'd feel cheated if it never happened. Without the grounding reality, it's just a trite bit of puffery, pure Hollywood, untrue in the way all such stories are untrue. Yet, even if it did happen, and maybe it did, anything's possible, even then you know it can't be true because a true war story does not depend upon that kind of truth. Absolute occurrence is irrelevant. A thing may happen and be a total lie. Another thing may not happen and be truer than the truth. What kind of truth is it that a true war story depends on? What is this truth that the teller of the story ought to be after? And is it the same truth that we seek as its audience? Although there's a lot in this passage that moves us towards talking about the need for fiction to tell true stories, a relevance to the study of memoir is the description of the question, is it true, as essential to discerning a true war story? And not only that, but the assertion that the answer matters. The answer matters not just because it changes our disposition to the particular narrative by leaving us feel, feeling cheated or not, but because even more fundamentally, we seek truth, even if, as O'Brien might tell us, there are different kinds of truth. Asking the question, is it true, and crucially considering what it means to ask that question for the reader, for the author, for the narrative, is fundamental for the study and writing of memoir as a genre and for understanding how it is that we engage the world in which we live. Even if Vilkomirsky did not survive the concentration camps and his narrative is not a Holocaust memoir, can it still be considered a true memoir? It's still a personal account born out of and descriptive of his childhood trauma. So you have some people who say, this is still a memoir. I would argue that it is not a memoir, that it's a novel, unless it's explicitly being presented as a memoir that is using fabricated experiences as a memoir, as a, as a metaphor, which it does not do. Um, it's, on the other hand, it is attempting to present a historically verifiable representation of the author's life. It is not doing that in fact, though. And then, for, so for me, that is not a memoir. The answer matters. But perhaps an author lies without knowing it, or lies because he or she has already come to believe something that isn't true about their own experience. Can we know this as readers? Sometimes we can. And we can see from the examples of Vilkomirsky, of James Frey's A Million Little Pieces, Go Ask Alice, there are numerous examples, how betrayed readers feel and how disappointed we are with reading a memoir that turns out not to be true. It stops selling immediately, right? Even if we cannot pin down all the details of a memoir, can all this dialogue really be accurate? Are all the childhood memories of the author checked against other sources? Do we really know that this is what they were thinking and feeling on a particular day? We as readers are seeking truth, and more particularly, we are seeking to experience someone else's striving and desire for truth. Perhaps we can't really know 
the details of what everyone was wearing at a particular party or how her mother truly felt about her grandmother. But what we want from the author is their good faith attempt to present their story as truthfully as they can. Now, as Tim O'Brien reminds us, this truth-seeking and narrative might mean writing a story that also conveys emotional honesty in a way that seems to abandon realism of style. Now, consider the problem facing a young Jane Eyre. How do we convey personal experience in a way that is true and accessible to an audience? Writing the truth of personal experience means grounding the narrative in places, people, times, and other details that can theoretically be substantiated by others to some extent, but it also means writing in a way that acknowledges the multifaceted nature of individual experience, as well as the complex ways in which our individual lives are always overlapping and enmeshed with the lives of others, both in the experiences we seek to convey and in the relationship forged in the act of sharing a story. What we enter into when we pick up a memoir is an encounter with an other, a person who is appealing to us to listen to them and to understand their experience. When we doubt the truth of a memoir, it's an opportunity to consider the expectations that we have for truth and the nature of the relationship of trust that we build with others. Memoirs invite us to consider our own experiences and how we might recognize ourselves in someone else's story or the ways that they tell their story, even if it's different from our own. Fiction has its own unique ways of training us to think critically, creatively, and ethically. But memoir is different because its obligation to the reader compels it to seek emotional truth without abandoning what we might call historical truth. These are people out there in the world. These things really happened. How should we respond to these stories? How might we tell our own? I come back to the later part of the quote from student A. She says, quote, even without an audience, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about our lives are important in shaping how we go forward into our current and future lives. And whether or not it is done in formal memoirs, we should be mindful of the lives these stories enable us to live, end quote. This is what is compelling about memoir. Memoir demands that we recognize the ways in which we as individual readers or writers are always in relation to others and challenges us to constantly seek new ways of conveying and understanding what is true. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.